All right. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to SaberSims DFS Office Hours. It is Tuesday, August 30th of 2022. Thank you for tuning into the stream here today. If it's your first time listening or watching this show, uh, my name is Jordan. I'm the head coach here at SaberSim and on Office Hours. Uh, I answer questions from the SaberSim community about how to use our tools to build a better DFS lineup. So if you have questions you would like me to answer, uh, and you're watching live, you can post those into the YouTube chat or into the Office Hours channel in Slack. And if you happen to catch the recording of this show or the podcast version of this show as well, you can email us, support at sabersim.com. Uh, let us know that you want your question answered on the stream, and I will uh, answer that question on the very next show. We have uh, 12 baseball games in front of us here uh, on tonight's slate. Um, a couple questions already in our queue for today. Um, I know there was a question here um, about, you know, taking advantage of ownership inefficiencies, it sounds like on pitchers in particular, but I think the, the really, the, the question's really getting at like when to, um, when to like stop making adjustments almost, or, or or once you've added some value to the Saberson process, once you've made some of the adjustments to your lineups, then what, right? How far do you keep going? So I think it's a really good question. I think that's probably where we'll end up starting. Um, I know there was another question as well about stack pool uh, percentages. So the percentage of uh, lineups in your pool that have certain stacks. Um, so we'll go ahead and and jump into those here shortly. But the only two, those are the only two questions in our queue. So if you guys have questions for me, uh, fire away at me now. Again, I do my best I can on this uh, stream here to answer questions in the order that they come in. So go ahead and fire away at me now, um, and we'll get to your questions here shortly. So um, let's go ahead. I'm going to start. This is a question from KG, um, and uh, a good place to start. And uh, I'm going to do my best to answer this question for you, KG, because I know you said you're not going to be able to catch this one live and answer follow-up questions. So we're going to do we're going to do the best we can here. Uh, he said, "I've been doing my best to focus on ownership inefficiencies for MLB on FanDuel." Uh, let's hop over to FanDuel real quick so we can answer this question for that site. Uh, I really don't know the best approach to take because it seems like I get lost in the sea once I start to change one player and then another. What's the best strategy? Um, the example I can give is today's slate has Freed and Snell as the chalkiest pitchers. If I wanted to be less exposed to these two, uh, but more exposed to the lower-owned pitchers, but don't know the next best option, how should I proceed? Yeah, so this is a good question, um, and I think that's like kind of really the, the soul of the question here is um, if I know this, if I know I want to do this, and then I change that, but I don't know what to do next, then what, right? Um, and I actually think that's part of what SaberSim does really well is meeting you exactly where you're at, right? And that's, I talk about Saber score a lot through that lens as people say, well, how much should I value Saber score, right? Should I just, should I just build my lineups and be done? Saber score knows what the best lineups are and I'm, I'm just done. And, and my rule of thumb, the way I always think about it is let Saber score and let your pool of lineups be the tiebreaker once you have added all the other value that you want to add. So in this particular case, um, if you've got a sense of, um, you know, You've done some research. Maybe you've done some research builds. Uh, maybe you, you know, you've you've just looked around elsewhere, and you've kind of decided that you want to be under on these two chalky pitchers and Freed and Snell. But then you don't know what to do, right? Then who should you get exposure to? What should your lineups look like from that? If you're already leveraging, uh, if you're already taking an ownership stand based on your pitchers, what should you do with your stacks, right? Those are all the other questions that your lineup pool and Saber Score can kind of help answer for you here. Uh, so 
here, I'll show you what I literally mean by this in practice, right? So let's say that you're looking at this here uh, and you decide that you want to be underweight on, on Freed and Snell. And I'm just going to take the most extreme version of this and just say, I let's say you've decided that you want to fade them completely on FanDuel, right? Um, what we can do here is, is X them out. So we'll X out Freed and then we'll X out Snell. And this is what I mean about Saberson then coming in and picking up the slack of saying who are the remaining pitchers should you should play and how much of them should you get, right? We get to 30% Giolito. We get to 15% Zach Gallon. We get to, you know, 12, 12.5% Jameson Talon, uh, 12% even with the field on Nola, right? And again, what's happening here is that after having made that change, we, we X out Freed and Snell from our pool. Uh, we allow... Saber score basically to come in and figure out what that question is uh, or what the answer to that question is of how much exposure should we get to those other pitchers. Uh, it doesn't mean you necessarily have to agree with them. If you wanted to go even further, you could, right? Maybe you say, maybe what you want to do is get some positive leverage on NOLA, right? And you want to be 3x the field on NOLA and you want 35% of him there, right? You can keep going here. In this particular case, uh, we we are unable to meet the exposures. We don't have enough NOLA lineups in the pool. We have too many Freed and Snell lineups in the pool. So what I would probably do if, if this actually happened in practice is then go back to the projections tab and set some of this there, right? X out those two pitchers we don't want, set the minimum exposure to NOLA before we run the build and start over. But that was really just a, an example here that I was trying to give um, of, you know, you could continue to keep going, but eventually Saber Sim will, or the Saber score will just meet you where you are at and help fill in the other lineups using the rest of your pool. So, and I actually think that's an important thing really to just understand about the tool is that you don't have to have the answer to necessarily every single question right? Add, add the value to the extent to which that you want to, right? Take the stands that, that your process is leading you to, whether it's, you know, fading pitchers or being under on certain pitchers or being over on other guys or, or adjusting your stacks, and then let the Sabre score basically come in and kind of fill in the rest there. Um, and that's typically the way that I think about it. So, um, Again, I know KG that you, you're, you're not here with me live today. If you have follow-up questions for me there, or if you're still kind of confused, um, let me let let me know, um, and we can come back to this here. I guess maybe on on tomorrow's stream. Um, but you know, just coming back to to the main part of the question here, I really don't know the best approach to take because it seems like I get lost in the sea. Right? You don't need to feel that way. Right. Figure out exactly the changes that you want to make. In this case, you're leveraging against two chalky pitchers. You're fading them. You're under the field. Whatever. Saber score and the other lineups in your pool will help fill in the gaps of what other players to get to uh, once once you're you've you've added all the value that you can in that way. So um, really good question there. Um, and I don't I mean, when I sit down for a slate to build my lineups, my intention is not to have an opinion on every single player in the in the in the um in the field, right? Or in the pool. That's that's not my goal or every single stack, right? I, I might have a couple. I might have a couple directions of how or a few, right? There might be a few teams that I think are a little over-owned or a couple pitchers I want to get under on or uh, a variety of different things. But my goal isn't to have some perfectly optimized exposure I'm expecting to get you to every player, right? I, I typically just have a couple. So um, anyway, Eamon, Eamon says, that was a great question, KG. Yeah, I agree. That was a good question. Um, good place for us to start here today. So let's go ahead. Let's jump forward 
Um, and we'll answer this question from Nipsey here about stack exposures. I see some questions coming in in YouTube chat already here as well. We will get to those in just a minute. I'm going to hit the couple questions that were in Slack before the stream first. Uh, Nipsey said, hey, Jordan, how do you stand, handle the gaps in stack pool percentages? Uh, this was from last night. Toronto, 8% better than the rest. And the others are clumped together uh, before another drop. Or am I making something out of nothing? No, I think that's I think that's useful information uh, to look at, right? Um, you know, how I've been kind of using this stack pool uh, and this, 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 uh, We'll talk about this again, and I see another question in the queue that we'll we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail. But how I've been kind of using this stack pool is like how much, how many lineups in your pool, and let's let's adjust this to twenty are are viable given the contest, right? So let's say we're talking about um, you know a a hundred fifty max, ten to fifty k on Fanduel, right? Um, and maybe we're just we're jumping we're dumping twenty lineups into that contest just as a hypothetical, right? Um, this is basically like what percentage of these viable lineups from our pool have a particular stack or or player in them or something like that, right? So I I've been using this, and I think the gap that you might see there is useful information, right? Um, that's something that we definitely want to know. The the ranking itself is not the only thing to to take into account, right? Um, I think you can almost kind of think about this as like tiers, right? Like there is a tier gap here between Max Fried and the next best available pitcher because 23% of good lineups that we could play into this contest include Max Fried. And then the next best available pitcher is Blake Snell, right? And then, then Giolito, there's almost a little bit of kind of a mini tier there. And then you can see the differences between each next individual pitcher get smaller and smaller, right? The difference between Max Freed and Blake Snell, for example, is, uh, you know, almost uh, probably close to the difference between Blake Snell and then someone like Kevin Gosman or, or Brady Singer down here, right? Like just kind of thinking, you know, this is, I think there's two different ways you could do it. This is double, this is a, pro a little, a little less than double 13%. Or you could do it in absolute terms and say that this is like basically 10% more uh, than the 13% here. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is I think it is important to note the, the differences between the gaps here, um, whether you're talking about pitchers or stacks, right? We can come over here as well. Um, and you'll see, I think most often stacks are generally going to be a little bit flatter, um, but there's still kind of tiers and there's there's gaps here, right? Um, so if you are seeing uh, a, you know, Toronto is 8% better, better than the next best team. I think, I think it's safe to say that there's kind of a, a, a little bit of a, a small tier gap there between the, that Toronto and the next best team. And you may want to, you know, address that in, in your exposures to those different teams, right? Um, you know, maybe that's a team that you want to be a little bit higher on. Um, the reason I've been using this so much, this stack pool exposure is because it, it kind of accounts for all of the other things that you need to do in to be successful in the contest, right? Because this is your stack pool exposure of a build built at optimal settings for this contest. This is basically kind of saying like, you know, if you had 500 lineups that you could play into this contest, this might be about where you want it to be with your exposures, right? This is about what, what maybe makes sense for that kind of contest. Um, so picking up on the gaps in those numbers, uh, the absolute value of these numbers, I think is all, all a good idea. Um, so um, let, Nipsey, let me know if that helps. I, 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 I feel like maybe if there's kind of more of a practical question there, if you're like trying to figure out, you know, how much, 
exposure that you want to get to to these different teams. I think that's a little bit more of like a personal risk tolerance question. But like here, let me show you, you know, a good example. Let's go. Let's back up a couple slates here because I think I actually maybe maybe with a couple other slates here, I can demo like some of the other ways that I was looking at this. So yesterday, for example, um, let's talk about yesterday's slate. So uh, let's build a couple lineups here. I'm gonna show, I'm gonna build a couple lineups for a couple past slates and talk about like the differences here. So it might take a second because we're gonna run a few different builds. But yesterday we had Corbin Burns up top, uh, and then this kind of like large second tier uh, where you have Rodon and Montas and Berrios, right? And you can actually see those tier gaps expressed in the stack pool exposures. Um, and I'll show you, what, I'll show you how that actually looks. Um, I want to compare, I want to, I want to, so we just did today's slate. I want to look at yesterday's slate and I want to also look at the Scherzer Verlander slate from, I think Saturday. So you can kind of see the differences here of, of kind of how I think about this, right? Okay. So now let's look. Okay. So here's yesterday's slate, right? We have an enormous tear gap between Corbin Burns and the next best guys, right? Um, and actually, I think when I ran this yesterday, these were a little bit higher, at least in the build that I ran. Um, it was like 10 to 15% uh, for each of these guys and, and a little bit of a lower number here. But it was basically that that Corbin Burns was, was kind of by far the, the pitcher one. Now, does it mean that you have to play 100% Corbin Burns? No, but it does kind of explain why in your top 20 lineups that we're getting from this build here, you're getting 100% because this is basically what Saverson is kind of seeing that, yeah, I mean, there's only a, you could think about it as, yeah, there's only a 67% chance that Corbin Burns is the best pitcher that you could play kind of at, in theory, almost like, right. About 67%. But if you play any other pitcher, you're, you're basically dropping down to a 6% likely outcome or a, or a 5% likely outcome or a 7% likely outcome. Right. So there's, there's, there's a bigger tier gap in the pitcher yesterday from the number one overall ace on the board compared to the next best options than there was when we were looking at the slate today, right? This is kind of an easy way of looking and basically saying, you know, Freed or or Snell or any of these guys at the top are probably far more fadeable, at least for this kind of contest, than Burns was yesterday. And I know in hindsight, you know, Burns didn't have the best game. You know, that happens. But I think that's kind of the, the point that, that I'm trying to make here is the difference between those numbers. Um, you know, personally, I don't, I don't think that there are generally, at least like I haven't seen consistently situations where the stack pool exposures are like really far off from one another, just because the pitcher, I mean, hitter projections just generally are a lot closer, right? There, there is the occasional slate, you know, maybe Dodgers at Coors or something like that, where there is one stack that's projected so far above the others that you will see bigger, bigger jumps, right? But for the most part, this should, this is generally going to be pretty flat. Right. Um, so you said, I mean, last night Toronto was 8% higher. Let me actually go back to the last night slate and look at that again. Um, and maybe on a, on a smaller slate, like we had last night, maybe there is a bigger tier gap, um, between Toronto and the next best team, but uh, 
Um, let's see. So yeah, okay. So like returning to last night, right? Now, um, you know, looking at this, you can kind of, I mean, there's there's kind of a tier gap here, right? Toronto, I think being, you know, probably the best overall stack on the slate. Um, but it's a smaller gap from Toronto to playing New York or Philly or Minnesota or Boston than the, the Corbin Burns gap is on the pitching side, right? Um, and after that jump, then these gaps are much smaller between teams. So um, if I were setting my exposures here, right, um, or if I was kind of managing my risk here, I might be comfortable playing 60% Toronto, right, and having them be my most owned stack in 20 lineups because I think there's a tier gap there. But I might not be as comfortable playing 50% Philly on the other side when I feel like there's basically things are pretty equivalent between Philly, New York, and Minnesota, and even Boston and Milwaukee, right? I might want to be a little bit flatter there. So maybe I do something like, you know, 30% max of any one of these stacks, right? And we're still not getting to any New York, and maybe that's fine. But now I'm not as overexposed. And actually, you know, maybe we do something like this. There we go. So that's kind of flattening out my exposures, right? I'm still over on Toronto, which is perceived to kind of be the best overall stack here. But for these next teams that are all kind of living in the same, you know, rough tier-ish, I'm a little more flatly exposed to all of them, right? And actually, you could even go a little bit further and, and actually like kind of then come down and look at this tier, right? Do I Should I be, should I be 30% exposed to Arizona uh, in a situation where they are, you know, kind of similar to some of these other teams here? Maybe I only want 15% exposure there, right? And it's kind of flattening out that tier there down here a little bit as well, right? So, um, Nipsey, let me know if, if that helps, um, if, if that kind of, and that, that's not necessarily to say that this is the, the optimal way to do this, right? That this is what what everybody should be doing, but I think you can use the stack pool exposure as a way to get an idea of what these different tiers of, you know, probabilities of success are and use that as a tool to manage your risk if you so choose, right? I think that's one of the more powerful things you can do in the post-build process is adjust your exposures to different players and stacks to, to manage your risk accordingly, right? Um, and and I think it can be a good tool to use that. I mean, you could even do this on the pitcher, right? And you could come over here and say something like, you know, I only want 70% burns if he's only showing up in 70% of my lineups, right? And then what I would hope to see, and that's exactly what we get, is that the, the replacement players, the replacement pitchers that come in to fill this in are generally flat. Because to me, this is a flat tier, right? There's not a lot of difference between these guys. So I would expect to see something like this. If I had adjusted Corbin Burns to 70% and I got all of a sudden 30% Frankie Montas or Jose Barrios or any of these guys, I might have readjusted that a little bit further because to me, there's not any good reason to be well over one than the other. So um, good question there. All right, let's go ahead. Let's hop over to YouTube chat here uh, and keep it rolling. Uh, Skull said, Sabersim ownership is calculated differently than other providers. Uh, maybe. Um, I don't, I, I would assume so because, uh, they are, um, they are run through our Sims, uh, but I can't necessarily speak to how other providers do their ownership projections. What we do, uh, is we take an industry aggregate projection, right? So we'll use basically a baseline projection, uh, that is an average from, um, 
what what we what we think approximate approximates the way that the field will look at the slate, and then we build thousands of lineups at a high sim precision setting to basically kind of mimic the lineup construction process for the field uh, and the exposures to different players in that build becomes the ownership projections for those players, right? So Corbin Burns was showing up in about 60% of those field aggregate builds we were running before lock yesterday, right? This all goes on behind the scenes. So he gets set to around 60% there. Um, there's a couple things that I think are really nice about this. I think there's advantages to the way that our ownership is calculated. I think one, it is very quick and it responds very quickly when news changes uh, because it's such an automated process. Uh, two is that we will have ownership projections for any slate because uh, you know all it takes if you played the, let's actually go back to today instead of looking at yesterday. You know, If you're playing this three game early slash turbo slate here, right? We have pretty accurate ownership projections here um, because they are, made in the same way that they're made for the main slate, right? Um, I know other sites often will only have ownership for just the main slate or something like that. Um, they also do a very good job of picking up on unique lineup construction requirements um, on certain slates. You know, uh, people might be getting pushed in a direction where they are playing players more that, that don't particularly project that much better than other players at the same salary, um, but because of positional requirements, right? Uh, maybe people are getting in baseball. I think it's maybe a little less of a case, but in, you know, in something like basketball, um, if there's a ton of value at guard, uh, that might push, uh, higher salaried forwards and centers to being rostered more, uh, and having a higher ownership, um, even if they aren't projected much higher than other players at the same salary. And that's something you would only pick up on if you were actually building lineups to generate your ownership projections. So I think the ownership projections do a good job of picking up on that as well. Um, the one thing that our ownership model won't pick up on as well, because it is, it's, it's algorithmically determined, right? It's a, it's a computer model that handles that is narratives and the more kind of human components of ownership and, and DFS uh, lineup construction, right? Um, if there is a particular narrative uh, that would lead to, um, you know, one player being rostered much more than another or something like that, um, that's something that, that we might not pick up on as well. Um, golf, I think, is always a really good example of that just because that is a sport where projections are going to be so close. And a lot of times narratives do end up driving ownership a lot. Recent form narratives or guys playing on their home course or, you know, all kinds of different things in golf DFS can affect ownership. That is something sometimes where we won't pick up on those kinds of things as well. Um, and the last note, since this is something that's kind of been on my mind since you brought up ownership here, the last note I was going to mention is uh, projecting ownership is an interesting thing to do anyway, because what, what you're ultimately trying to do is ex exploit an inefficiency, right? That's, that's basically the goal of projecting ownership at all is, you know, basically say, well, you know, Freed's going to be 35% owned, but he should be 26% owned or something like that. So I'm going to be under on him, right? Well, inefficiencies, it, it, it is hard. The, the more predictable something is the the more irrationally that person's probably wait let me get this right basically you want to take advantage of people that are acting irrationally right that aren't that are taking the the information given to them in the form of projections or, or whatever and making the wrong decisions right that creates an ownership inefficiency well the less efficient ownership gets the more irrational somebody's acting but also the less predictable that they get 
right? Like it's it's hard to kind of predict exactly where ownership inefficiencies are going to be. Uh, so I think that's something to just be aware of when you're kind of thinking about the ownership problem in DFS in general, right? Like if you could reliably say that Max Freed is going to be 50% owned, but he should be 20% owned. And there's this massive ownership inefficiency and you're right. And the field rosters him at exactly 50%, right? The same kind of forces that would be leading you to thinking he was going to be owned at 50% probably should also be making you think that maybe he's just under projected uh, in your model or in this, in the Saberson model in this case. And actually maybe uh, that the field is a little bit more right. Right. The the best ownership inefficiencies that you ultimately end up getting to take advantage of, I think, in DFS sometimes are unexpected. It's like when you sit down and you're like, OK, yeah, Max Freed's 35 percent owned. That sounds about right. Uh, I'm going to roster him about 35 percent of my lineups. And then all of a sudden he's 50 percent owned and you could have never predicted that. Right. Then that's that's an ownership inefficiency there that is probably very irrational because it was unpredictable. So anyway, that's kind of just a I don't know, a theory rant thing. Um, and uh that, that's been on my mind a little bit recently. So I just had to get, had to get that out. But um, Deshaun said, uh, are you still doing 0010 research builds and then editing a few exposures? Um, so I, I still like the idea of those research builds. I have been featuring them a little bit less in my process recently since we added that stack pool exposure and I've just made that. And, and also since we've updated these sliders, um, because I think the stack pool exposure kind of gives you a better baseline for what those numbers should actually be, right? The 0010 research build is, is calculating the probability of a player ending up in the optimal lineup, right? Um, and you don't really need to get that granular or specific for most contests. Um, so... The stack pool exposure, I think, has been a better idea for approximating the probability of that player being in, I guess, like the winning lineup uh, for that particular contest because it is contest adjusted, right? It's saying for what we have found to be optimal in a 150 max 10 to 50K, right? Uh, that Freed is in, you know, about 40% of good lineups on DraftKings for that kind of contest or has, a, you know, I think this number does a decent job of approximating probability of being in the winning lineup. And it's already ownership adjusted because ownership fate is accounted for in that calculation here. Right. So I have been running my research builds a little bit less, especially things for things like baseball, where I think, you know, the idea that you need to get to the optimal lineup to win is, is kind of a bad assumption for golf, for MMA, for showdown, for even things like tennis, I think that works a little bit better. And I, I'm still leaning on those research builds a little bit more. Um, but since we've re-back tested the sliders, and I feel a little bit better about where they are at here, since we've added this pool exposure, I've I've found that that the that research build step isn't as uh required um as I as I feel like I it once was for my particular process. So um AB Smooth here says, uh, how does Saberson work with sports that there are no projections for? How should I use it for college football with my own projections? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, the, the the simple answer here is that for any sports where we don't have sims or projections, uh, we have those slates loaded up in the app. 
uh, as kind of a convenience so that you can upload your own projections and use SaberSim as a as a traditional optimizer there. Uh, but it is a little bit buyer beware here just because they're, those aren't our projections. They're not our sims. Um, I, I would say... I would say in general, um, what I would probably, it's its hard to answer that question. Um, what I would probably do um, is lean pretty heavily uh, on things. I'm going to use the salary-based projections here just so I can do this. I would lean. Okay. What I would probably do is I would probably use a pretty high smart randomness. I would probably want to be pretty diversified in that that pool. Um, and I would probably lean pretty heavily on creating stacking rules to get the right kinds of lineup constructions because you're not going to have any way to account for correlation automatically here. Um, I mean, we, we, if you're talking about college football or soccer or any of these sports we don't have sims for, the way that you'll be using SaberSim in this context is exactly the same as any other tool out there. It's, it's just going to optimize for the highest average projected lineups possible. So to account for variance, I would probably want to turn smart randomness pretty high. Depending on the size of the contest that you are playing, I would probably also, um, you know, turn ownership fade up a little bit if you have ownership projections as well. And then set stacking rules in a sport like, you know, um, football, you're probably going to want stacks built into those lineups. So something like at least three players from the same team. Um, you know, you could also come in here and do something like at least four players from the same oh never mind we don't have the same game options here so something like that as a baseline to get your your lineups to account for some correlation and go from there uh is how i would do it but um the these slates are not you know explicitly supported um by the app um if we don't have sims for them so uh kevin o said uh atlanta stack along with uh, wait, what? Oh, exposure. Uh, Atlanta stack along with Pittsburgh gives you pitcher exposure. Um, I'm not sure what you mean here, Kevin. Uh, maybe you can give me a little bit more context on, on your question here. Um, a little bit lost. So let me know. Uh, chicken nuggy. Uh, said, I've watched the new profit plan video. How are you treating effective entrance now? I know you talked about it before the new approach. Yeah, so um, our, our, our new profit plan, and I actually kind of addressed it in that video. The effective entrance theory, I think still makes a lot of intuitive sense, right? The more unique players playing in a contest, the softer that contest gets on average, right? There are a finite amount of skilled players in any given lobby. And as the number of players in a contest gets bigger, you have to pull from less skilled players. Right? That still makes a lot of intuitive sense. The big thing that that didn't take into account is variance, right? Is is basically that, you know, maximizing your, your theoretical ROI at all costs is not necessarily the actual best way to make real profit. Uh, how I ultimately think about effective entrance now is I allow it, I will follow the profit plan pretty religiously um i will allow it i will allow effective entrance to be a final tiebreaker all else being equal right so for example like right now when i'm building when i'm playing when i'm entering my fan duel baseball entries uh and i'm i'm uh filling in my elevator contests at the end one thing that i get to is should i start playing like higher dollar single entries 
or playing some of these like they have a Fando has a variety of like three max and five max contests around like ten to twenty dollars. A lot of times, I when I'm just filling in the last couple entries in my portfolio, I will generally select those single entry contests to fill in some of those final contests in the portfolio because they have a little bit more effective entrance and I think they're going to play a little bit softer. But I'm only really doing that as a final tiebreaker while following the rest of the the framework there, and that's what I would recommend doing as well. I think there, I think it still makes some theoretical sense um, to to uh, rely on effective entrance a little bit as a tiebreaker, but just because it it doesn't take into account variance at all. Um, I think it, it can only go so go so far there. Um, uh, one other real quickly, I was going to note um, for those that have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, if you haven't already seen our DFS profit plan video, um, please go check it out. It's on our YouTube channel right up here at the top. Um, start winning more with our DFS profit plan. If there's one video on the entire YouTube channel, um, this is the one to watch. Uh, it will outline... Um, our contest selection and bankroll management framework that we recommend for every player. We put a ton of work into actually doing the research to come up with this. Uh, and I think I, a lot of times people ask that question, Hey, just found you guys found the YouTube channel. Uh, where do I start? There's like 10,000 hours of content on here. Um, this is where you should start. This is probably the best video on the channel to watch. Um, because I think it, it is probably the fastest way to start improving uh your well i think to improve your roi and to smooth out the variance that you're seeing in your results so definitely recommend checking this out especially if you have no idea what i'm talking about here um let's hop back over to uh youtube chat uh real quickly um so um let's see um Interesting question here from Mr. T uh, on the binary sports such as tennis and MMA. What are your thoughts on trying to pick all the winners and then running builds through that? I've had mixed results. Um, it feels like it's somewhat unnecessary because the Sims themselves are going to kind of do a better job of handling that in a more like moderate approach, right? Like, Honestly, if you want to just go like pick all the winners of every event, you could probably get better odds on making those guesses by just like putting a couple dollars on like an insane parlay at a sports book or something like that, right? When you build your lineups for tennis, for example, and you come in here, right? This Sim Precision 10 is using basically an average projection of one Sim of each match to build each individual lineup. So like every every single lineup in your pool at that point is saying, here's an optimal for if this is the way every match on the slate plays out, right? Instead of you having to go through and think about, okay, I think this game, I think this guy's going to win this match and this guy's going to win this match and this guy's going to win this match. And here's the best lineup for that. SaberSim is basically doing that process for you 500 lineups at a time in just a few seconds. Um, so I, I think... I think you're right. Like this is actually basically what you were trying to do, right? This is like literally what what we are doing in DFS, but this, the tool does this way more efficiently than you could just kind of do mentally in your, in your head. Right. Um, and if you still want to play really like aggressively with your exposures, right. And basically say, I'm going to act as if these three players have a 100% chance to win and just lock them into all of my lineups. 
you can still do that. And Saberson then will say, okay, given that, here are the here are the best 20 that you can play where these three guys are all locked in, or 150 where these three guys are all locked in. Um, but that's more of a personal risk tolerance question than like a strategic question. That's too risky for me for what it is worth. Um, but yeah, so um okay. Um Let's keep going. Another question here from Mr. T um, about the research builds as well. Um, and said, you've mentioned previously, you're no longer using research builds as much now that we have pool exposure is still the case. And do you apply? Okay. So yeah, we kind of talked about this. Do you apply that theory to all sports or just certain ones? Also with you not using the research builds as much as their value and utilizing the potential 5k pools in the future extension of the app. Um, yeah. And I don't want to give the, uh, the impression that I've like, completely turned on the the research build. I think it's still useful as research, right? As a way to kind of familiarize yourself with the the slate. I also think it's very useful for visualizing like probabilities. Uh especially in a sport like baseball, people will get obsessed with the top overall stack. Um right? Like you know, you're looking at the slate tonight and let's see, who is it? The Braves, 5.4 runs, right? You're looking at the Braves at 5.4 runs at Vegas, and maybe you're looking at the average projections, and you're like, wow, how can I fade the Braves, right? Or Braves and Yankees, right? How can I get off the Braves and Yankees, right? They're, they're projected so well. Running a research build is still a really powerful tool to kind of give yourself some grounding, like, you know, if we run this, let's just run this real quickly. I'm sure that this will end up showing that, like, the Braves and Yankees maybe have, like, a 10% chance to be the optimal stack, right? Maybe probably around 10 to 15%. Uh, and that the actual, from the best overall projected team to the worst overall projected team isn't that much different. I still think for things like that, to just kind of get an idea of what the what the approximate probabilities um, are uh, for these things, I think that that's more useful. Um, I've just found that for me, that the pool exposure does a better job of giving me an idea of about how much exposure do I want that's relative to the contest I'm playing and the sport I'm playing, right? If you look at something like MMA or tennis, again, for example, the pool exposure is basically a research build because the default settings for tennis are like three correlation. Correlation doesn't even matter really in tennis. One, 10, right? Like a research build is zero, 10, and the default settings for tennis is one, 10. So you are basically getting a research build in your pool exposure. Right. But for baseball, we don't need 10 sim precision. We don't need to take on that level of of sim granularity. Right. Uh, and we want a little bit of correlation in there. So the pool exposure basically just gives you kind of a better number that's relative to what you need for that particular contest. Right. So there's they're they're still useful. I think I so actually, yeah, here even better, right? The Braves have a 7.7% chance of being the top stack. New York 7.5, right? Like this, I think is still useful. This is a very grounding thing to look at for me to remember that, you know, the, the, the presumably best stack that is unfadeable on the slate is never really when you think about it from the standpoint of a research build. So, um, anyway, Mr. T, let me know if that kind of answers your question. I, I think the, the simplest way of, I've been looking at it is less so that I'm not doing research builds anymore. But more that I think you get a better sport and contest adjusted research build by using the pool exposures 
than running a separate one at 0010 and potentially not really needing that or not really having that. Um, so. Um, okay. Uh, DG said, speaking of, did the filter thing change today? It appears to not be auto-locked into projections of four in MLB. Yeah, so we did move the filters. Um, it moved over here. Um, I know there was a bit of confusion yesterday afternoon about where that moved. Uh, that went live yesterday. The main reason we did that um, is where it used to be here was just kind of weird because it it only affects your player pool. It doesn't affect these games up at the top. And people would get confused about like what that was exactly you know applying to. Um, so we added it here. If you click that, you'll get this button to add a filter and you can add it back in. I did notice as well that the minimum projection filter got removed. I'm not sure if that was intentional. Uh, ultimately it doesn't really matter if it's there at all anyway, because you're not going to get those super low projected players in your lineups anyway. Right? Like we used to have a filter that would, you know, remove players that were projected for less than four points in your lineups. Right. It is not as if you are getting, you know, relief pitchers in your lineups with that filter taken off anyway. So um, it shouldn't have much of a practical impact. I'm still, I'm not entirely sure if that was intentional or not. Um, if you want to just, I mean, it's pretty easy to just throw it on here as well. Um, if it is helpful for your process to still have that there, right? Um, and then you can see all those guys get removed. So uh, Deshaun said with the variance in baseball and with a large slate, like today with 12 games, would it be a good idea to just cap max exposure to like 20 or 30% for each player? That is kind of like exactly one of the things that I use the stack pool exposure to do, right? Um, is, is answer that question. What is an appropriate max exposure? Uh, and this is a, this is my research build. Let's go back to this one, right? What I've typically found based on using that number, uh, is that I typically want to spread out quite a bit more uh, on my hitters than I get by default. Um, and actually today, um, it's actually not that bad. 26% max exposure and 150 lineups to any one hitter feels pretty good. Um, but I might look at this and, and maybe even bring that down a little bit further just based on this number alone. Right? There's not a single hitter that's showing up in more than 14% of my lineups in my pool of 500. Right, I definitely want to be pretty spread out at hitter today. At pitcher, right, 40% of these lineups have Max Freed. Uh, and then there's this big kind of secondary tier here, 20, 23, you know, 20, 20, 20, right, between Giolito, Osman, Snell, Gallon, right? So for me, I actually might be okay having quite a bit of exposure to Freed because I think there is a big tier gap when you drop down, but maybe 40% Giolito is the, is the line that I feel like that's a little bit too high. So maybe I cap Giolito here instead to again, have that effect of smoothing out that secondary tier a little bit more. Right. Um, but hitters, I'd probably be, probably be okay with like this kind of number, right? Ultimately, and you can experiment with this for yourself. You can't make this number be exactly this number for every single player. Right, because ultimately we still have to pick 150 lineups out of the 500 to play. So remember that. But I think this number can help influence your decisions on how risk tolerant or um, risk averse you want to be on a given slate. Um, chicken nuggy. I thought effective entrance also doesn't take into account the smaller effective entrance. Generally, the softer the contest. 
since it maybe since it has more total entries, which is hard to quantify. I remember you mentioning it in the video, but I didn't understand the new approach on it. Thanks. Um, let me read this again. I thought effective entrance also doesn't take into account the smaller effective entrance, generally the softer the contest, since it has more total entries. I'm I'm a little confused by this comment here. Um, I wouldn't, I, I would say to sum up, I wouldn't overthink effective entrance so much anymore. Basically, we we found that the the impact of that overall on the the contest was a little bit lower than we expected and that playing these portfolios that work together to maximize your upside while minimizing your risk is the optimal strategy. Um, so you shouldn't really have to be calculating or worrying about effective entrance too much if you're following this profit plan now. Um, and yeah, so, but it, let me know. I, I'm also happy to come back to this question if if you uh, want to give me a little bit more context there because I'm a little lost on that one, so. Um, Deshaun said also with it being a large slate, would it be a good idea to move the correlation slider up a little bit? Um, so I actually, so we, we actually just turned correlation down, right? Defaults for basically all, all sports just came down. Um, we just wrapped up a big project on reback testing these sliders using contest simulations. It's covered in detail at every step of the way in, in our behind the Sims podcast. So if you want to kind of see, you know, from episode one to episode seven here, how we came up with these new defaults. You can watch this. And I will actually be having Matt on stream here tomorrow to kind of talk about our findings in this project and talk about these new slider defaults. Um, but our correlation slider came down. And I think you will find that that's going to lead you to having some smaller stack sizes here uh, than, than you might be accustomed to. Um, we'll talk a little bit more in deep. So first of all, I covered this a lot yesterday. And we'll talk a lot more in detail about this on tomorrow's stream as well. I would say it is a larger slate here tonight. I think there is some reason to believe that that you should play some larger stacks um, as a result of that. I think based on what we found in our contest sims, I think the better way to do that is to either adjust your stack exposures in the post build or set stack rules. So if you're looking at the slate and you're saying, I don't want to play anything you know, that doesn't have a four stack in it, 12 game slate, that makes sense to me. I'm bought in there, but I would do it with a stack rule. And the main reason why is I think what, what our high correlation value is doing more than we wanted it to was overvaluing the correlation of just not very good hitters relative to their, their raw scoring potential, right? Um, like, let me pick... Um, like getting too many Seattle stacks that heavily featured, you know, Sam Haggerty and, and, and JP Crawford and Cal rally. These guys actually do have some pretty good upside. I want to pick a worse team. Um, you know, maybe Oakland, right. Getting worse versions of the Oakland stacks because of how bottom of the order, lower upside hitters correlate to other hitters in the lineup because of how high the correlation slider was. So I think now with a lower correlation, if you set a stack rule or adjust your stack sizes in the post-build process to get larger stacks, you will get better versions of those stacks than you were before with a higher correlation slider. So um, anyway, I don't, I don't dislike the idea of adjusting the correlation slider 
or sorry, I don't dislike the idea of playing larger stacks on a slate that is larger. Um, but I would hesitate to say you should turn your correlation slider up because we just went through this big project where the number one finding basically that we found out of this was that turning the correlation slider down was the right idea. So um, anyway, uh, Skull said, uh, you'll be making the DFS profit plan for NFL too. I think the plan is yes. Um, that I, I do kind of want to do another video. I, I will say the concepts of this plan apply regardless of sport, right? Um, you should be able to watch this video. And even though in the, in this video, I apply this to the baseball lobby, you should be able to watch it and take kind of the framework and apply it to the NFL lobby the same way. Um, so I think I do, uh, you know, early in the NFL season, want to record a video, basically taking the exact same framework here and applying it to the DraftKings and FanDuel lobby and just showing what that looks like. Um, but you should be able to do that anyway, as well on your own. Um, so I would say, give it a try, like review this, give this another watch if, if you haven't watched it recently, um, and then go through and take a look at the NFL lobby and see, okay, well, these are the contests that I would actually be playing based on my bankroll. Um, and if you have questions, then come back to office hours and ask me and I'm happy to walk through it. Um, but so I think, uh, I, I think I have given off a little bit of a perception that this is a baseball thing that this video is for baseball. Um, and that's not the case. This is for DFS. This is the DFS profit plan, uh, not the MLB DFS profit plan. So you should be able to take a lot of what's covered in here and apply it to other sports. And I have, right? I mean, this is this has influenced the way that I select my contests, not only for baseball, but also for golf and MMA uh, and tennis occasionally um, and, and different sports like that. You have to make little adjustments based on how big the sport is um, and, you know, uh, your perceived edge potentially in different sports and how much you actually want to invest, but the core framework should apply no matter what. So, um, cool. Um, good question here uh, from Nipsey as well. Um, he said, how much of the Vegas money lines are baked into the Sims? And have you ever used the Sims uh, to make money line wagers? Um, so Vegas is not a primary input into our simulations. Um, we are not, they, it is not directly being used as like a, a core foundational input it is used as a backstop in the Sims. Basically, we have alerts and, and things set up and logging on our end. If we are way off of Vegas on a particular situation, uh, it gives us um, a, a way of doing a little bit of manual review and make sure that we're just not missing something crucial about the game, like who's pitching. Uh, or, um, you know, another thing that can actually influence that quite a bit is if the roof is open or closed in certain parks, um, like Toronto or Houston or things like that. Um, so it is, a, I, I, I call it a backstop um, or kind of a guardrail in certain situations to make sure that we're not just like way off, but it's not necessarily a, a primary uh, input there. Um, regarding using SaberSim for betting, we used to have a, a betting product that would actually, based on the Sims, give recommended um, bets on things like money lines and spreads and totals. We've been, we, we pulled that down um, 
because we are more focused on the DFS side right now and just wanted to, instead of having to support these two different project product, products uh, that were basically moving in, in kind of different directions, we wanted to really double down and invest more heavily in the DFS side of things. So that's our direction right now. I think the plan in the future uh, is potentially to return to some more um, betting type tools that leverage the Sims, um, because I think there's, there's some value there. There's some potential there, but we're, we're a little bit more focused on the DFS side of things right now. So cool. Uh, any other questions here for me today? Um, we have five or uh, 10 minutes or so left here. On today's show, I did mention it earlier, but I did want to uh, mention it again here. Tomorrow, uh, Matt will be coming on. I'm really excited for that stream. I think it's going to be a, a really good opportunity uh, to talk about some of these new sliders. Um, we hinted at it in the Behind the Sims series um, as we were going through it that we were going to, you know, maybe create some some waves here and maybe challenge some conventional wisdom about optimal DFS lineup construction. And I think we kind of have, right? Um, the, the lineup and the stack types that you get with the lower correlation slider now um, are a little bit different than I think what the, the conventional advice about optimal stack sizing is. Um, and I think we're challenging challenging some um, some conventions there. So I'm excited to talk, about, talk to Matt about it a little bit more, hear his take on some of this. Uh, so definitely tune in tomorrow, uh, 2 o'clock Eastern, to tomorrow's stream and come ask any questions you have about um, our process that we use to do this project, um, any questions you have, uh, anything like that. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So um, Skull said, for NFL, what projection number would you use for the filter? Show players with any projection greater than? Good question. Uh, so I actually, I vary this quite a bit for NFL. Um, because I think each position is very different in terms of what uh, what you should be comfortable with as your lowest overall projected player. Like defenses, for example, I ne I don't want to limit my um, projections for defenses at all. Oh, what is this? Oh, okay. It looks like uh, I don't know what this is. That's that, that filters applied, but not applied to any pitches or positions uh, for defense, for example. Right. I, I like there's no reason I, I'm, I'm I'm almost just as happy to play the lowest overall projected defense as I am the highest overall projected defense. I'm pr pretty much always uh, willing to play any defense. Right. Um, at running back, for example, um, I typically draw my line of kind of the last the last running back that I want to see in my lineups a little bit higher than even something like, like four, right? Um, typically, I would say around five, six DraftKings points or so. You start talking about second string guys that clearly have some upside. Um, but you know, a guy like, just for example, um, you know, Raheem Mostert, right? Um, Probably, presumably, the second string running back behind Chase Evans for Miami. Right, like he can get there, right? 99th percentile, 23.3%. But even his 95th percentile is just 16 points, right? 5% chance or less to a 5% chance to meet or exceed 16 DraftKings points. The opportunity cost, I think, of using him in a position like that uh, starts to get a little bit high there. So my running back line typically ends up being a little bit higher, right? Maybe, you know, minimum seven overall average projected points for running backs 
Typically, the way I ultimately end up recommending people do this and the way that I end up doing it is figuring out just for yourself, what is that last, like what is the lowest overall projected player that, for that position that you would be comfortable seeing in your lineups and drawing the line there. Um, running back is where that number is the highest for me. Wide receivers, just because they have, I think, a little bit more potential to basically just make all of their ceiling all in one play um, and because they correlate so strongly to the quarterback in a lineup. Right. I typically am a little bit more comfortable having a little bit higher, having a little bit of a lower floor here. Right. Like Marquez Valdez Scantling is only projected for 5.69 points. It is very easy to see what MVS's upside would be. And actually, I think very easy to see a path to him getting 20 points fairly easy, especially when correlated maybe with like a Travis Kelsey plus Patrick Mahomes lineup. Right. Um, and he's projected for less than even Mostert was before. So I, I do this on a per position level um, where I would say I typically have almost every QB in my pool. I'm comfortable stacking virtually any team. Uh, I'm pretty much comfortable playing any defense in my pool. I'm pretty generally comfortable playing almost any defense. Um, running backs, I do have a little bit more of a line where I draw, where I say, you know, I this is kind of my running back pool. Um, tight ends is another one where... Um, there are a lot of very cheap punt type tight ends that have very low upside in your lineups. And there's nothing wrong with punting tight end. I'm not saying you have to play a stud tight end in every single lineup. Um, but there are a lot of these guys down here um, that I will typically draw a line and just say, you know, I don't want to play anybody below this line. I at least want, you know, some kind of upside potential for that, that particular guy. Um, so it kind of depends. I think the best, again, the best advice I would give is actually try to figure out where that last guy is for you, right? Like look at the list of tight ends and figure out, you know, where's, what's the last, if you picked a random lineup from your portfolio out after the slate locked, what is the lowest overall projected tight end that you would be comfortable seeing in that spot? Right. And it's going to be a little bit different for different players. Um, mine would probably be around, you know, for some of these guys down here are on the edge for me. Um, so. Good question. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in detail as we get we get closer here, like next week. Um, I can kind of go through and, and actually like maybe do a demo of that a little bit more. So um, Chicken Nuggy said, Jordan, thank you for being in the behind the scenes videos uh, because you explain everything to me like on five with the data scientists in there with Matt and company. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's kind of my role there. Um, and I, I embrace it. I feel... I. I feel the, the same way being in that actual video um, of, of trying to trying to follow along when the data guys uh, and the engineers are, are talking uh, all the technical stuff of, of kind of trying to ask the, the more practical DFS kind of question or implication there. So I'm glad uh, that, that it's that's that I'm doing my job there. So. Um, Mr. T said any update on the new subscription? It's coming. We are still like QA testing and building out some of the features there. I don't have an update. Um, honestly, I think the only reason that this question and like people have even been asking about this is because I, I showed off a couple of the builds these past couple weeks, um, where I was, where I banked and I was using some of those, those like new features, like the 5,000 lineup pool. Um, so cats out of the bag a little bit, I guess there. Um, but, um, the 
basically the short answer is they're they're not ready. Um, we're still building the stuff. We're still doing QA testing. We're not. We don't want to release something that doesn't like work. Um, I think uh, it it looks like all uh, all sunshine and rainbows when you see my past build um, where it it has you know five a five thousand lineup pool. The reality is is that that feature completely breaks if you change anything right now. Like you can't set a single rule and build that kind of lineup portfolio or the build won't complete. So it's not perfect. It's not, um, I, it, it's something that we're still building out and finishing and doing some testing on. So um, I don't have an update or an estimated release date on that yet, um, but it's it's we're working on it. So, um, but anyway, um, we'll go ahead. I will, uh, leave things there for today. We're right at about, um, the, um, the hour mark here. So I will be right back again tomorrow with Matt joining me here for that kind of open Q and a, uh, closing the loop on the, the, uh, the slider backtesting project. So come join us tomorrow. Ask any questions you have about the new sliders. Uh, enjoy this 12 game, uh, baseball slate here tonight. Um, I'm looking forward to it here. It seems like just based on the research builds and the things that we did here on stream today, it looks like there's a lot of different angles to play on this particular slate, not um, a lot of uh, must plays, a lot of, a lot of different ways to, to get different here. So um, looking forward to it. But in the meantime, good luck, and I will see everybody here tomorrow. Take care.